Thanks for being on the show, David. I appreciate you joining us on Hell on Earth. Oh, thanks a lot for having me back. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. So let's start off first. You call yourself an astrobiologist. What is that? (laughs) Well, as it sounds, it's sort of a hybrid word, um, which describes a hybrid field. Astrobiology uh, is, to some degree, a combination of astronomy and biology. It's a multidisciplinary attempt to understand the potential for the universe to create life elsewhere. So the astro part, uh, we try to understand the environments of other planets and how they evolve. And the bio part, we try to understand the history and limits of life on Earth and try to infer what might possibly be universal about life elsewhere and then combine that with our growing astronomical knowledge to figure out where there might be other environments for life in the universe and how we might go about recognizing or even contacting it. So astrobiology is the life universe and everything. It, it kind of is, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, that's pretty good. And the, and the answer is 42. <laughs> exactly. Well, good. Then I think we're done with this interview. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm glad, we, glad we cleared that yes. up. How long has astrobiology been a thing? Well, for a long time, obviously, people have wondered about alien life. So in that sort of looser sense, it's been a thing for hundreds of years, arguably since we figured out there were other planets 400 years ago. But when we started exploring space, exploring the other planets in the 1960s, there was something called exobiology, which was kind of a fringe field that some scientists pursued, but it wasn't as mainstream. It wasn't completely respectable. But there were some notable people like Carl Sagan who were interested in the question of extraterrestrial life as it applied to space exploration. But then really in the 1990s, there were several discoveries that helped astrobiology go mainstream and, and, and got it, get a new name. Exobiology became astrobiology. And partly we started to discover the, the extremophile life on Earth, uh, which is, you know, all these organisms that endure a much wider range of physical conditions than we knew about. And we discovered that there are some other environments, uh, like an ocean underneath the ice of Jupiter's moon Europa, that may be very promising for life. And we started discovering the exoplanets, that there are planets around other stars, not just in our own solar system, but all over the universe, it turns out, there are planets. So all these discoveries happened in kind of that time frame of the, the late 1990s. And then the, the real icing on the cake was the discovery of a, a rock from Mars, a meteorite from Mars that turned out to possibly have microfossils in it. That's the Allen Hills uh-huh. meteorite? Yes, the Allen Hills meteorite. And that's still a very controversial find, but there were uh, discoveries made inside that rock that some credible scientists made a decent case that could have been microfossils from Mars. And all of these things sort of pushed astrobiology into the mainstream, and NASA realized that it didn't have to keep it on the fringes anymore, and it gave it some funding and started an astrobiology institute. And so really, since that time, astrobiology has been a more mainstream uh, part of, uh, of space science. I assume it was considered fringy originally because of, what, association with UFOs? Yeah, you know, there's always been this problem of, uh, you know, uh, 
what you could call a signal to noise problem that say that in this subject of aliens there's a lot of noise culturally a lot of reports of things that then turn out to really be uh, you know much more ordinary things that people think are aliens lights in the sky that are really just you know the planet venus or um, a reflection off an airline or whatever so there's so much noise that it was easier for scientists to just completely dismiss the possibility but as we study the universe and learn more about life and learn more about other places in the universe, the idea that there may be at least simple microbial extraterrestrial life uh, is not outlandish. In fact, I'd say most scientists who really thought about it conclude that it's quite likely there is other life. Let's talk about your book. So you're approaching this from the point of view of an astrobiologist, and your book is called Earth in Human Hands, Shaping Our Planet's Future. So what was your motivation for writing this book? Did we need another book about what to do about the Earth? <laughs> well, uh, in a broad sense, we're pretty confused about what to do about the Earth. So if, <laughs> if anybody thinks they have a new approach to that question, then uh, I would welcome it. And I thought I had a new approach, so I decided <laughs> to write a book about it. And, and my approach is I decided to try to look at the question of humans on Earth as an astrobiologist. In other words, somebody that thinks about how planets evolve and the role that life can play on planets and is used to thinking about other planets, what does it look like if you turn the telescope around and look back at our own planet from that perspective? So I wanted to put the human presence on Earth in the cosmic context of all the different changes that Earth has gone through in its history. Earth has gone through some pretty radical changes and it's going through a radical change right now due to the presence of humans. And I wanted to put us into that story, into that deeper planetary story, to see if looking at ourselves in that way might give us some new perspective on uh, what our real challenge is here and some new ways to think about our role on this planet and, and our future. So is, is that the key that you're kind of approaching here is, yes, the Earth has been through changes for billions of years, but this is the first time we are not only experiencing, but perhaps affecting that change. Yeah. So, you know, if you look at the different kinds of catastrophic changes the planet has gone through, and it's, it's gone through many, that you can sort of on a very deep level ask, what is different about the change that's happening now? And it turns out we are not the first species to come along and radically change the planet, even in ways that um, are catastrophic for other life. There have been other global catastrophes in the history of the Earth that have been caused by species of life just proliferating wildly and being so successful at what they do that they end up poisoning the planet for other species. So we're not the first ones to do that. Can you give but, an example of another species, another time that changed the Earth in that way? Sure. Well, uh, you know, a really powerful example is when life figured out how to use solar energy, when photosynthesis evolved and became common. There were these creatures living in the ocean, which is where all life lived uh, two and a half billion years ago, called cyanobacteria that were so successful at using solar energy to multiply themselves that they poisoned the entire atmosphere with a, a gas that was toxic and fatal to most other life that poison gas was oxygen. 
we call this the great oxygen catastrophe. And we think, oh, oxygen, what's wrong with that? We love oxygen. But that's because we've evolved, of course, to use its powerful chemical energy that is released when it combines with organic molecules. But until we evolved that power of respiration to use those reactions, those oxidation reactions with organic matter were poisonous and destructive. So that's an example of a species that came along and they just said, hey, here's a new energy source. Let's exploit it like crazy. <laughs> and, and they did it. And, uh, and of course, they sort of wrecked the world for all other life. Now, we see ourselves kind of doing that same thing. And uh, what's different? Well, of course, what's different is that we see ourselves doing it. What's different about now is what I call the advent of self-aware geological change. Hmm that this is the first time a geological force has been aware of its own existence. So you're calling humans a geological force? Yes. Uh, and, that, you know, I'm not the first one to say that. There's this term that people may have heard, the Anthropocene, or Anthropocene, depending on uh, how you like to say it. The uh, geologists are now considering the idea that we have actually entered a new age of geological history, characterized by a new force the force of the combined actions of humanity changing the planet. It's not just about carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but we've changed the hydrological cycle of the planet by damming so many rivers. And we've changed not just the carbon cycle, but the nitrogen cycle and the sulfur cycle. And of course, the sea ice and the nature of the land surfaces we've changed with, with agriculture. And, and so looking at the planet, uh, even from space in time lapse, you would suddenly see all these things changing on the planet now. So there's a new force of change, and this is the reason why geologists are now talking about the Anthropocene Epoch. So my book, Earth in Human Hands, is basically an effort to describe the Anthropocene Epoch from an astrobiology point of view, and with that deep time perspective, say, okay, what's really going on here? And so this existence of a force of geological change that is actually aware of itself creates, I think, great peril, but also potential for change. And that's, that's sort of one of my points, is that this, this is a dangerous time, but it's also a time that can go in ways that are actually quite positive for not only our species, but our biosphere, if we really kind of get a handle on what we're doing here. You say it's a dangerous time. Uh, you've also, I think, said that we're at the controls of planet Earth, but we're not in control. Exactly, exactly. We're at the controls, but we're not in control. So, so we're just flipping buttons and switches blindly and seeing what happens. <laughs> yeah, it's like we're grabbing at the wheel. It's like a child grabbing at the wheel of a complex vehicle. Right. And, you know, we've got to learn how to drive this thing. <laughs> we, we have you know, to own up to the sapien part of Homo sapiens, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and sapien means wisdom. And, uh, you know, when Linnaeus uh, named us Homo sapiens, uh, he was looking for a way to differentiate us from the other apes in the genus Homo. And he uh, he, he called us the wise apes, Homo sapiens. Maybe that was wishful thinking <laughs> on his part, um, or an aspirational name. But in fact, we have no choice, I argue, in the book. We, we, we can't just take our hands off the wheel. Kind of like you break it, you bought it. We now um, have an obligation to learn how to manage this planet well, because we've assumed this role. We can't just suddenly stop everything we're doing without causing even more death and destruction without sort of knowing it, we've assumed this role of planet changers. 
and uh, we're, we're not going to stop being planet changers. So what we have to do is learn how to do it well, how to be wise planet changers, and how to, like you say, how to live up to the sapiens part of our name. I think you use the term Terra sapiens? Yes. One thing I talk about is that when we approach our future, we have to do more than just talk about what we want to avoid. Obviously, we have near-term threats. We need to avoid the mass extinction that we, we've initiated but haven't yet fully started. We, we still have the opportunity to not cause a mass extinction. We need to obviously get a handle on climate change. But beyond what we want to avoid, I think it's very important for us to have a vision of what kind of a planet we want, what kind of a role we want to play, where we want to go. The 21st century obviously is a time that's fraught with a lot of challenges, but there will be a 22nd and a 23rd century. So, I, you know, we need a vision of how we want the world to be. And my name for that vision is Terra Sapiens, which means wise Earth. In other words, once we solve some of our near-term problems and pass this test, which we are faced with now, and create a more sustainable presence on the planet... And even, I argue, uh, we have the potential to play a, a, not just a, a benign, but a constructive role on the planet and to prevent future natural disasters and prevent future dangerous climate change and prevent dangerous asteroids from hitting the Earth. You know, we, we can turn it around so technology is actually helpful, not just to ourselves, but to the biosphere. And when we get there, then that's my vision for Terra Sapiens, a, a truly wise human presence on the planet. If you've just joined us, we are talking to Dr. David Grinspoon, astrobiologist and author of the book, Earth in Human Hands, Shaping Our Planet's Future. We've been talking about the human impact on Earth and being wise stewards of the Earth. As the subtitle of your book says, Shaping Our Planet's Future, that begs the question, should we try to shape our planet's future? What do you think, David? Yeah, it's a very provocative question. And, you know, when I call the book Earth in Human Hands, you could picture, oh, isn't that sweet, the beautiful Earth. <laughs> Holding the little Earth, a little flower night. going but, out the top. Yeah, a little flower. <laughs> but but a lot of people react with horror. You know, they post uh, <laughs> the, the, the little... Uh, Emoticon with you know with 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 the the uh, surprised horrified face whatever that is with the open mouth which is appropriate I don't mean Earth in human hands to be a totally easy concept in fact it is daunting and a little bit frightening to think that we clumsy short sighted bickering humans are somehow responsible for this massive complex beautiful planet that we barely understand it's it's quite daunting and yet. I think people have an illusion that the Earth without us would be fine in the long run, that the climate left to its own devices is benign and Earth is this sort of Eden, this sort of garden. And that's an illusion because we've come along at an unusual time in Earth history. Our entire civilization has grown up and flourished in this 10,000-year period of relatively stable and relatively warm climate that is, uh, is an anomaly and will not last. Earth left to its own devices goes through really extreme climate changes. And, um, you know, there will be another ice age at some point, And our civilization would basically be completely destroyed. And a lot of other species would go extinct. So once we get over our immediate short-term 
um, challenge of just stopping our own vandalism of, of the planet <laughs> and of the climate, then we could turn to the question of, well, what then? What if we're to imagine ourselves having a long-term future? And I think we have to imagine ourselves having a long-term future. What role might we play on the planet? Can we flip this around? And actually, I think that when we get a handle on ourselves, it then becomes our obligation to play a more constructive role on the planet. And over the next 50,000, 100,000 years, we would absolutely want to stop those natural destructive climate cycles. And we would absolutely want to stop that next asteroid from striking the Earth. I mean, people say it's sort of a joke, but the dinosaurs did not have a space program. That's why they're no longer <laughs> here. Uh, we do have a space program, and we don't have to go the way of the dinosaurs. So, you know, these are longer-term concerns, but my point is that we need to take a long-term view. We need to move beyond thinking on just on the scale of a human so lifespan and think about collaborating with our descendants, collaborating with with future generations and sort of holding up our end of the bargain. So by lengthening our horizon in time, we then get the perspective on the planet, which will help us to behave with more wisdom, both for our short-term threats and for our kind of long-term vision. So if you're talking about care of the planet and our effects on it and consciously taking some actions, are you talking about geoengineering for example, and what about not only the known risks, but the unknown risks behind that? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so geoengineering um, is the idea of tinkering with the Earth in some way to change it purposefully. And my perspective on that is that the short-term quick fixes to climate that one hears about, uh, oh, we'll just fix global warming by uh, injecting some particles in the stratosphere and cutting down the sun's rays that way or you know, throwing a whole lot of iron into the ocean to cause a big algae bloom, which will suck CO2 out of the air. I'm very wary of those quick fixes because I just think we're far too ignorant of the Earth system at present. And the risk of unintended consequences, as you mentioned, is very, very high. Sure, we could dim the sun by throwing some stuff in the stratosphere and that would maybe cool the global average temperature. But what would that do to global precipitation patterns and where might that cause a monsoon to fail and lead to famine? We just don't know uh, the system well enough to try that kind of thing. So on the short term, I think those fixes are, are irresponsible and, and that it's the more obvious need is to simply reduce our emissions and transition our energy systems to ones that don't wreck the natural systems that we depend upon. But I am in favor very much of researching how we could engineer the planet and learning more. We need to learn a lot more about how the planet works and about our own role and our own potential role. And I do think that over the longer run, uh, now we're talking thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, that if we get over our near-term hurdle of being this bull in the china shop that's like wrecking our climate right now, there will come a time when we know a lot more about how the planet works and we have a bit more of a handle on our own global behavior. And it will become the obligation of sentient life, of technological life, to, um, to take care of the planet and prevent mass extinctions. We can turn this around and actually save many more species than we are currently threatening. 
But in order to do that, we have to learn a lot more. So I'm in favor of thinking about geoengineering in the long run in terms of taking responsibility for the Earth and for ourselves. But I'm also very wary of these schemes that one hears about. Of you know, it, I think if any time in the next few years we were to try to deploy one of these quick fixes, it would be very, very reckless and dangerous. There may come a time later in this century when we realize that global warming is getting worse and worse and we're not doing enough, that it might be a good idea to try something like solar radiation management as a sort of emergency measure. But that creates a lot of problems of, of governance, ethics, you know, who's going to be in charge, what's the how should we set the thermostat? How do you handle it if it benefits some regions and hurts other regions? There's a lot of problems it causes that I think we're, we're really not ready to deal with. So uh, I, I support doing the research, but I also think that it's very much our responsibility right now to, to mostly to get a handle on our, our emissions and transition our energy supply, our energy infrastructure. And there's no quick fix that's going to get us around that need. The quick fixes are probably due to political pressures that are focused on short-term results and hard to take the long view. Exactly, exactly. That's almost our core problem right there, that we, we need to do better at taking the long view, at taking a global view. I actually think um, there are some examples, some hopeful examples that show that we have that, that within us, we have that capacity. If you look at, um, there's some successful examples of this kind of global solution to global problems. If you look at um, the ozone layer destruction, in the 1970s, we realized we were um, messing up the ozone layer with an unintended consequence of some seemingly great new technology. We had uh, introduced these new refrigerants, chlorofluorocarbons, mm -hmm. that were celebrated for being safe and non-toxic and environmentally you know responsible which they are down here in the near the surface of the earth in the troposphere where we live but then uh, of course you can't anticipate all the possible effects of introducing something new into the environment so these these gases started leaking up into the stratosphere and up there uh where there's a lot of ultraviolet light they um play a very different role the the uh, some of the the chlorines from these chlorofluorocarbons get nicked off by ultraviolet light, and those naked chlorines start uh, destroying ozone. Fortunately, we realized we were doing that in time, partly, actually, believe it or not, because we were exploring the planet Venus and had noticed some similar chemistry in the upper atmosphere of Venus, where chlorine was destroying ozone. And some scientists said, aha, wait a minute, this is happening, and sounded the alarm. And uh, the nations of the world got together and had discussions about this and did something about it not without a lot of friction and pushback and denial and charges of scientific hoaxes and all the same stuff that's happening now uh, happened with this ozone problem. But, but ultimately, reason prevailed and treaties were signed and um, those chemicals were phased out and new ones were phased in. And there are some examples like that that show that we do have this capacity to solve problems globally and uh, to think long term. We just have to get a lot better at it and we have to do that in a hurry. <laughs> well, as good scientists, of course, if we were going to run experiments, we'd like to run many experiments, changing various variables in different conditions and seeing what happens. The problem here is we have only one Earth. 
And it's probably not very helpful to us if we do one experimental run that is a catastrophe. So we can't exactly do a lot of changes on Earth without incurring some serious risks. So, you know, you get into this in your book. Earth is not the only example in our lab. We have other planets, other solar systems. You mentioned Venus as an example. But now with all these exoplanets as well and looking for life elsewhere in the universe, perhaps we could use that information to feed back on how things are going on Earth and perhaps be better Terra sapiens. So you talk about SETI. You talk about you know intelligent worlds in the universe. What is your take on the likelihood of other planets with life, particularly advanced civilizations, and if they're not there, what does that tell us about what we're doing? Yeah, uh, very well put. Like, like you said, uh, you know, we only have one Earth, and we can't just run the experiment and see if we were right. <laughs> it doesn't help us to make a good prediction, you know, and then say, aha, we're right. We, you know, we caused catastrophe. Or, <laughs> uh, so having lots of other planets is really helpful. I sort of start and finish the book on this point. The first book is called Listening to the Planets, where I talk about the fact that we have all these other planets is making us smarter about how planets like Earth work and allowing us to test our climate models and enrich them in ways we never could if we were restricted to just studying the Earth. And so that can really help us imagine alternate futures by having the, all these range of different planets and see if we really know how to do climate modeling if we're able to predict Venus and Mars and all these exoplanets. So that, that's really helping us get better at understanding our own planet and putting it in context. Now, I finished the book with a section called Intelligent Worlds in the Universe, where I do ask this question. If there's some kind of transformation happening on Earth now where uh, so-called intelligent life using technology is becoming a major planetary force and is faced with the question of, can that become a sustainable, lasting presence on a planet? Is this a transition that could lead to a new phase of a planet, or is this just a flash in the pan that, that dies out? And it turns out that people that have looked at SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, in a way have been asking the same question for a long time, because the, the math of SETI all comes down to longevity. In other words, if you want to ask, are there other civilizations out there that we might make contact with, and you sort of do the math of, well, how likely is it, given the number of stars, and how far away they are, and how prevalent planets and life, and intelligent life may be, you put all that in the equation that comes down to how long do civilizations last. If civilizations with technology can last for a long time, meaning thousands or even millions of years, then there ought to be somebody to talk to. There ought to be plenty of them out there. If, on the other hand, a civilization with world-changing technology is an unstable thing that always does itself in after a few hundred years or after a thousand years, then the universe ought to be very devoid. There ought to be nobody nobody to talk to. So it's it's interesting. It turns out it's the same question, the question that we're facing now with our own future. Can world-changing technology become something that is integrated gracefully into a planet in a long-term way? Uh, our own existential question is the same question that we're faced when asking about SETI. Are there other, is there anyone else out there? And it also means that when we search for other possible civilizations, in a way, we're searching for 
an existence proof that it is possible to solve mm -hmm. the kind of crisis we're facing. Because they're if likely to be hear, more advanced than us anyway. They're likely to be much more advanced than us. They're, they will only be there if they've reached this point that we're at now and solved the problem we're facing now. And I talk some about, you know, people have talked about that we, we seem to be facing a kind of bottleneck. People talk about the 21st century bottleneck. E.O. Wilson talks about this. Um, Sir Martin Rees talks about this. But there's a sort of acceleration of a lot of technological threats to our own existence now that are coming to a head in the 21st and maybe the 22nd century. And there's sort of a dangerous time of instability where we may not get through this bottleneck. We may do ourselves in. But on the other hand, if we learn to get a handle on ourselves and live with some of this technology, there's a way in which one can imagine it actually leading to great longevity and, and aiding survival, not just of ourselves, but of other species. And in some of the ways we were talking about earlier, fending off dangerous planetary changes and natural disasters. So that's why it's the notion of a bottleneck, that if you get through this certain phase, what some people have called the technological adolescence, and get to that more mature phase, you can imagine technology being something that really leads to vast longevity. And so, so this idea of a bifurcation, that you're going to go down this one path of self-destruction, but if you get over that threat, if you reach another phase, then you're down another path of great longevity where you become even maybe sort of immortal or quasi-immortal. You Maybe ultimately you're off of one planet and you're a multi-planet species, and then you're not even vulnerable to a planet-wide disaster. So this idea that technology can lead to self-destruction or to great longevity, and it may be one or the other, then when you apply that to SETI, you realize that the, the civilizations were most likely eventually to detect or hear from or discover are those that have probably gone down this path of great longevity. In a certain sense, it's a very hopeful search. If we find that there's somebody else out there, it may very well mean that it's possible to go down this path of wisdom and that there may be, just as I talk about Terra sapiens, there may be exosapiens out there <laughs> where, where other planets have achieved this sort of wise relationship between technology and, and the functioning of, of their own world. You say SETI is an optimistic thing, but allow me to be pessimistic for a moment. We haven't detected any signals. Does this, what has been coined the Great Silence, mean it is inevitable that civilizations destroy themselves once they have the technology to do it? Well, it could mean that. And, you know, one thing um, I, I want to stress is that even though I'm, I'm discussing these uh, optimistic scenarios and these optimistic uh, possibilities for our own future, I definitely don't claim to know that that's our path and to know that that's the path of other civilizations. And I completely acknowledge there are darker possibilities. And yes, one interpretation of the fact that we haven't heard from anybody is that there's nobody there because they, uh, they've all done themselves in because there's something about technology that's inherently unstable. I don't think there's a good ironclad argument for that. For one thing, I don't see the great silence as being all that great. We haven't really looked that long or that far or that widely for signals yet. So what we've learned is it's, it's not true that every star has civilizations just like ours broadcasting loudly on radio bands in ways that we would pick up. So we, you know, we've learned something about what's not there. But there are a lot of 
caveats to that. Um, even the fact that we don't know that they would even be using radio. Maybe they've got some technology we don't understand. Maybe they, they're not interested in talking to primitive species like us. You can go, you know, the, the answers to this, the so-called Fermi paradox of, right. of, of where are they are, you know, there are books and books about it. There are a lot of possible paths. It doesn't necessarily mean there's nobody out there because they're all dead. <laughs> right. <But> one possibility. <laughs> you mentioned in, uh, that in David Brin's uh, 1983 paper, maybe they're quiet because they're paranoid for some reason, or the one civilization that got there first snuffs out all the ones once they start signaling. You yeah, can come yeah. up with all and, these you know, scenarios. There's a debate right now about that, of course, should we signal? There's, a, there's actually a very active debate, and I talk about this in the book a little bit because I think it's sort of a great metaphor for our own current global situation. I call it finding our voice. You know, could we decide as a uh, global species that we want to try to send signals in some coherent way, and would that be a good idea? And there's a debate about that. Now, what if there's some existential risk? I tend to think the existential risks are probably pretty low. I, you know, maybe I'm just constitutionally optimistic, but I doubt there are other species out there that want to come and kill us. But I can't say 100% that I know that's true, and there's some interesting arguments about it. But my main thought about that debate is that it's, it's really worthwhile because it does get us to confront ourselves as a global entity and think, is it possible that we could try to speak with one voice? And what would we say about ourselves? And I think it's actually worthwhile trying to have some kind of a process. It's never going to be perfect that, you know, we get every person on earth to, you know, push a clicker and, and democratically agree that we are or aren't going to send a signal and here's what we would say. But just because it's not going to be perfect doesn't mean we couldn't try to initiate a process and have wide buy-in from different places around the world and different cultures and, and you know, actually attempt to create some kind of a message from Earth um, that was somewhat um, as representative as we could make it be and some kind of an inclusive process to decide if it was a good idea. And there are actually people that are working on this now. I don't think it's the most important problem facing us, but I do think it's a wonderful way to sort of encapsulate this gnarly problem of how do we get people to think of ourselves as one coherent entity facing common problems and a common destiny. So for that reason, I actually rather like this this debate about uh, messaging aliens because it, it gets us to think about um, ourselves in that uh, sort of planetary context. So let me finish then with a question from your experiences an astrobiologist, someone who for a living thinks about these big questions of life, the universe, and everything, and looking up at the stars. Are you optimistic about the long-term future of the human race, considering where we are right now? Yeah, I am. I'm very worried about the next century, honestly, about you know the time that you know, our kids and our grandkids are going to be uh, facing challenges that are that are to come. I think we're in for some rough decades. But I think if you imagine the 22nd century, we will be off fossil fuels. Uh, I mean, that's inevitable. Even if we were dumb as we could be and just drill, baby, drill and burn it all, they'll, they'll be gone. So we will transition our global energy system to another uh, more sustainable system. It's just a question of what path we'll take. And we need to push for the path of least damage uh, and least pain. But we will get there. The world will be somewhat changed, but there will be a world. Global population is going to level off 
late this century. All projections basically show that and, and turn around for the right reasons, because fertility is declining, because poverty is decreasing, and, and women are getting more choices in a lot of places and uh, having smaller families. And so there are a lot of long-term trends and long-term inevitabilities that lead me to think that in the 22nd and the 23rd century, we will have solved a lot of the problems that confront us. We will have lived many generations with the knowledge, the sure knowledge that we are a global entity with global problems that require global solutions. I even think we'll look back on this time with disbelief uh, and go, can you believe that those people in the, the early 21st century were still driving around in those vehicles that were <laughs> destroying their own atmosphere? What were they thinking? So I'm optimistic on the long run, and I, I, I don't at all um, downplay the severe challenges we've got in the short run, but I think that we need to hold both of those visions in our head, the long-term vision of where we want to get to and the, the short-term um, challenges that we you know, need as much resolve as we can to, uh, to push ourselves towards the path of, uh, of wisdom. Well, on that challenging but optimistic note, I would like to thank you, David Grinspoon, for being on our show. Well, thanks a lot, Joel. Uh, it's um, really fun talking with you, and I, I always enjoy a chance to uh, converse with you about, uh, about all these great topics. Well, we look forward to talking to you again as we move further into the Anthropocene epic. <laughs> yes, may it, <laughs> may it live long and prosper. <laughs> Thank you, David. Thanks. Bye-bye.